So this morning we will be uh, in Matthew 5, actually 5, 6, and 7. So uh, Pastor Scott and I, as you know, have been preaching through uh, the Gospel according to Matthew. And so we have come now to the place uh, in the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a lot of things to be said on the Sermon on the Mount, and I will obviously not say them all. We are actually kicking off a series now uh, of sermons in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, again, this will be an overview this morning and some things that I hope um, we can all see together. So Matthew, just a reminder, Matthew is the gospel to the Jews. And what we have been seeing in the gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is replaying, he's recapitulating the history of Israel, the Old Testament chosen people of God. And so would you please turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. I want to do a flyby, Matthew 1. A flyby as we introduce the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, of course, the first book of the New Testament. In Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, this genealogy of Jesus links Jesus to Abraham, the father of the Hebrews, and to David, Israel's greatest king. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we see the account of the birth of Jesus. And this text links Jesus to Joshua by giving him, Jesus, literally the same name, Joshua. Okay? Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. And that text you can find in Matthew 1, verse 21, where it says, That you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus literally means God saves. As we moved into Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we saw the visit of the wise men or the magi. And what we saw was these Gentile magi who asked Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Gentiles. Asking for the king of the Jews. Upon finding him, Jesus, the Magi, fell down and worshipped him. And the link here is again back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God promises Abraham that in you, Abram, Genesis 12, 3, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That includes the Jews and the Gentiles. Further on in Matthew 2, we saw the flight to Egypt. And what is called the slaughter of the innocents. Because Herod is king in Judea, he doesn't appreciate all this where is the king of the Jews talk. He considered himself to be the king of the Jews. And so Joseph, Mary's husband, is warned by God in a dream about Herod's intent and is told to flee to Egypt. Not to Syria. Not to Babylon. But to Egypt where the Old Testament Israels were enslaved 1,500 years earlier. Herod figures out he's been tricked by the Magi who go home via a different route, and he's so angry that he has all Bethlehem's children, aged two and under, slaughtered. Which sounds a lot like how the Egyptian pharaoh tried to have all the Israelite newborn boys killed back in Moses' day. Exodus chapter 1, verse 16. 
So, to be clear on this particular point, Moses escaped death at the hands of a seething, godless king as a newborn Israelite male baby, and Jesus also escaped death from such a king. Both of them were hidden away, Moses in a basket in the Nile River, Jesus whisked away in a basket perhaps, I'll leave that to you, where? To the land of the Nile River. We also saw that Matthew, in Matthew 2, verse 18, he ties this slaughter of the innocents to the lament of Jeremiah the prophet over the Babylonian exile of the people of Israel and Judah. Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus. We see Jesus, now listen, we see Jesus in contrast to Noah in the ark, and the Israelites who passed through the Red Sea, led by Moses, we see Jesus getting wet. Which signifies that he is willing to undergo judgment represented by the water, while at the same time his people, say the Israelites coming up out of Egypt, remained dry and were spared judgment, which of course at the Red Sea fell on Pharaoh and his Egyptian army. In Matthew 4, 1-11, we saw the temptations of Jesus, and we found Jesus there being led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself. We find Jesus quoting and believing in God's word, which, by the way, these were the words of Moses, which he spoke in Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times. And Jesus, believing in God's word, would be in contrast, in contrast to the unbelief of the Israelites rescued out of the Egyptian slavery. The Israelites' unbelief resulted in their destruction. But the faithful believing and quoting of Moses' words in Deuteronomy resulted in Jesus' victory. And then at the end of Matthew chapter 4, last time we were in Matthew, Pastor Scott preached a message called The Conquest Begins. He preached on the beginning of Joshua's, I mean Jesus's, conquest, not just of Canaan, but of the world. Beginning with Galilee of the Gentiles. And what was Jesus' inaugural message? Repent, turn from your sins, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this, of course, is the same message that was being preached by his cousin, John the Baptist. At the end of Matthew 4, we see Jesus beginning to surround himself with 12 tribes. I mean, 12 disciples. And we see that he was beginning to manifest his power over every disease and every affliction among the people. And finally, we see him, Matthew chapter 4, verse 25. We see him being followed by a great crowd of people from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. The story that Matthew is telling here could not be more clear. The story is this. Jesus is the new, 
true embodiment of Israel walking in the midst of the nation Israel. I'm going to say that again. Jesus is the new, true embodiment of Israel walking in the midst of the nation Israel. That's what you should see. There are the clear comparisons, but there also are the clear contrasts. And these contrasts serve to demonstrate that Jesus, this new, true Israel, is superior to the Israel we read about in the Old Testament. Where Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, worked mightily in the life of the nation Israel, God works mightily in the life and ministry of Jesus. But, but where Israel was unfaithful and failed, Jesus is faithful and succeeds. And in Jesus, listen, we see especially that Moses, Joshua, and David are unmistakable types. Types. That is, Old Testament persons, real historical Old Testament people who foreshadow the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This morning, as we engage in an overview of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7, we will see all of this and more. Let's begin with Jesus as the prophet who comes after Moses. Now, interestingly, Pastor Scott read paragraph 33 from the 1646 Confession, which is extremely relevant to what I'm about to talk about this morning. I, however, want to go, you don't have to go there, but I want to go to paragraph 14 of that same confession, which we believe and confess and profess. Paragraph 14. Let me read it for you. It is entitled, Christ's Threefold Office of Prophet, Priest, and King. This is how it reads. And by the way, you can find this on our website, AbidingGraceChurch.com. This is how paragraph 14 reads. The mediatorial office to which Christ is called is threefold, prophet, priest, and king. This number and order of offices are necessary for, because of our ignorance, I'm just reading it, I didn't write it, because of our ignorance, we stand in need of his office as prophet. Because of our great alienation from God, we need his office as priest to reconcile us. And because of our hatred toward and utter inability to return to God, we need his office as king to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. So we see... That Christ is our divine mediator, which means he and he alone stands between us, redeemed sinners, and a holy God. This is what a mediator does. And of course, Jesus, our Savior and Lord, is qualified to be the one and only divine mediator by virtue of his perfectly righteous life, which he lived under the law. Lives that you and I have not lived. 
So we affirm and confess that as the divine mediator, this role, R-O-L-E, is clearly manifest in Jesus as prophet, capital P, priest, capital P, and king, capital K. And what we'll see this morning in the Sermon on the Mount overview is that Matthew, listen, Matthew is continuing to tell the story of Israel as Jesus assumes these offices of prophet, priest, and king. Again, let's begin with Jesus as prophet, the preeminent prophet. Back in Deuteronomy, which is Moses' farewell address to the Israelites, rescued out of Egyptian slavery and on the verge of conquering the land of Canaan. Back in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, Moses says this. This is what Pastor Scott read just a few moments ago. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Moses says, And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Like Moses. Who is the prophet? We know from Peter's sermon in Acts 3.22 that Peter identifies Jesus as the prophet who fulfills Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15. There is no doubt about this. That's Acts 3.22. But does Matthew, what I want to explore this morning, does Matthew in his gospel to the Jews give us any indicators of Jesus as the new Moses, the prophet who receives and then gives God's law? Turn to Matthew 5, the first verse. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus went up on the mountain. Now, put your Israelite thinking cap on. You're reading Matthew's gospel. You're seeing all of these parallels between Jesus and Israel. These comparisons and these contrasts. And you get to Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, which is a bit of an anachronism because when they were reading it, it didn't say 5-1. But anyway, that's not the point. You get to Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 and you read as a good, knowledgeable Israelite that Jesus goes up on the mountain. And in your mind, as a good, knowledgeable Israelite, There's only one person who can come into your mind who went up onto a mountain himself to receive and subsequently pass on to the people, the great crowd of people, God's law. Who is it? It's Moses. You can read about his account on the mountain in Exodus chapters 24 to 31. 
An Israelite can draw only one conclusion. Jesus is the new Moses. And you, if you're a knowledgeable Israelite, are utterly not shocked that in just a few verses, Jesus will expand and expound on the law of God. You shall not murder. You read it in Matthew 5. You shall not commit adultery. And so on. Thus, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus functioning in his office as the divine prophet who comes after Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15 Let's move on to Jesus as divine priest. Jesus as divine priest. The second office that we read about in paragraph 14 of the 1646 Confession is that of divine priest. Now, there is a lot that could be said about Jesus as divine priest. And the most obvious place to go in the Old Testament is to the Levitical priesthood in the books of Moses, Exodus, and Leviticus. I, however, would like to go to a slightly different place just to provide all of us some additional perspective on the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, I want you to keep your place in Matthew 5, if you will, because we're going to come back very shortly. But I want you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8. So you have First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. And I want to read the first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra is the chief priest at the time. He's the biblical scholar in the midst of the people of Israel at this time. And he's getting ready to read God's law to the Israelites who have returned from Jerusalem from their exiles in Babylon and in Persia. The date of Nehemiah chapter 8 is around 440 B.C. And I didn't put this reading in the earlier part of the service because with all these Hebrew names that would have just been mean to Scott quite frankly. So, but I'm going to read it, okay? So, Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Here we go. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate there in Jerusalem. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand. And Pediah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. See what I mean? Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, the Levites, that's important, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. I want you to see the role, R-O-L-E, of the Levites, the priests, here in verses 7 and 8. Look again, the Levites, the priests, help the people to understand the law. Verse 8, they, the Levites, the priests, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So there's no doubt that the Levitical priests of Israel had many tasks to execute in the tabernacle and temple worship of Israel. We can read about these in the other parts of the Old Testament. What I want you to see from here, though, from this text in Nehemiah 8, is that another important role of the Levitical priests in Israel was to help the normal Israelite to understand God's word, God's law, so that they could really truly understand what was being read and heard. Now, with that in mind, I want you to hear a few verses from the Sermon on the Mount. If you kept your finger in Matthew 5, please go with me there. I will pick up in verse 21 of Matthew 5. Jesus is speaking. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. 26. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In verse 21, you shall not murder. In verses 22 through 26, what is Jesus doing? He's explaining what that means. In context. This is Jesus as divine priest reading God's law Verse 21, you have heard that it was said. And then explaining God's law to the people. Verse 22, but I say to you. At this point, I have to save the details of Jesus' explanation of the law for another sermon to come, Lord willing. But what I want you to see is Jesus, here in the Sermon on the Mount, functioning as divine priest, 
explaining God's law to God's people. Let's move on now to Jesus as the divine king, the heir of David's throne. So we have seen Jesus in his office as the divine prophet, the successor to Moses, and we have seen Jesus in his office as divine priest, explaining the law of God to the people of God. Let's focus now on Jesus as the divine king. Now in 2 Samuel 7, we read this. Pastor Scott read this, and so I will pick up in verse 8. 2 Samuel 7, and I'm going to pick up in verse 8. And this is the Lord speaking. Now, therefore, thus you, Nathan the prophet, shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure Forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. We've already seen in Matthew 1 the tie between Jesus and David. So we had God tell Moses that there would be a prophet just like him come after him. And now God says to King David the same thing. There is another king coming after you just like you. And God says, he will be my son. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, here's the question for this morning. Can we see Jesus as divine king the heir of David's throne in the Sermon on the Mount? Answer. I submit to you that this is the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what I mean. We're going to thumb through the Sermon on the Mount, you and me, Matthew 5-7 through at a high level. And what I want you to see is this. The divine king, the king of kings, Jesus our Lord, is defining for his people the following two things. Number one, what the life in his kingdom is like. And number two, what the law of his kingdom is like. What the life in his kingdom is like. What the law of his kingdom 
is like. Let's see these two things. Again, beginning in Matthew 5. After the first two verses of introduction, we begin in verse 3 with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And so on. I'm not going to go into detail here. That's for the next sermon. But at a high level, what are these things? What, what are the Beatitudes? The Beatitudes are a description of the character of a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. A character that results in a person being truly blessed, truly, wait for it, happy. The king says this, This is what my people, my citizens, my disciples are like. And we see that motif of character picked up in verses 13 through 16 too, don't we? Jesus says to the great crowds, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The king is telling us about our character. What's next? Beginning in chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus, the divine king, begins to give his law. Does the king not have a right to give a law? Indeed he does. Back in Deuteronomy 17, you don't have to go there, but in Deuteronomy 17, 18, Moses says that when the new king of Israel comes and sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the Mosaic law approved by the Levitical priests. And I was going to read the whole paragraph, but I chose not to. Back in Deuteronomy 17, for a little bit of homework this afternoon, Deuteronomy 17, 15. We see that it's God who chooses the king and he must be an Israelite. Jesus is a Jew. In verses 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy 17, we see warnings to the king against becoming rich and multiplying wives. Turns out Jesus was poor and chaste. And in Deuteronomy 17, 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write down a copy of the law for himself. We saw in the last sermon, Pastor Scott's sermon from Matthew 4, that Jesus has come into the land, the land of Canaan, and he has begun his conquest. He has declared himself to be the king of the land by exercising his power over sickness and disease. Should any of us now be surprised that he's going to have a law? Just like all of the previous kings of Israel were supposed to have. We should not be surprised. But once again, what do we see? We see both comparison and contrast. Yes, Jesus is an Israelite king. And so he should have a copy of the law, Deuteronomy 17, 18. Which, by the way, we barely have any record of any of the kings of Israel and Judah actually doing this for themselves. But, this time, this time, Jesus, the divine king, isn't merely writing down the law that came before 
Now the divine king has arrived in the land and he is giving his law. And how is he doing that? How is he doing that? Flip over one page, just to the end of Matthew 7. Jesus is doing that. Verse 28. As one having authority and not as their scribes. Verse 29. And the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. He's not merely writing down the law to be approved by the scribes. He is giving the law as the divine king. Let's keep going because I want to get through this overview before lunch. What comes next in Matthew 6? Matthew 6, after Jesus gives his law. Well, we've seen what the law of the kingdom is like. Now what we have is life. What the life in Jesus' kingdom is like. Here we go, verses 1 to 4. How does a citizen of the kingdom of Christ give? And we should give. Verses 5 to 13. How does a citizen of the kingdom of Christ pray? And we should pray. Verses 14 and 15. How does a citizen of the kingdom of Christ forgive? And we should forgive. Verses 16 through 18. How does a citizen of the kingdom of Christ fast? And we should fast. Verses 19 through 24. How does a citizen of the kingdom of Christ accumulate wealth? And we should store up our treasure indeed, brothers and sisters. Verses 25 to 34. How does a citizen of the kingdom of Christ live in this world, listen, without anxiety? And we should live without anxiety. On into chapter 7. What do we find there? In the first part of the chapter, we find more of what life in Jesus' kingdom is like. Verses 1 to 5. How does a citizen of the kingdom of Christ deal with confronting another citizen of the kingdom? And there are times that we must do this. Verse 6. One verse on how a citizen of the kingdom of Christ deals with those who are not citizens but rebels. And verses 7 through 12, a few more verses on how one citizen of the kingdom of Christ should deal with another citizen, a brother or a sister. And of course, that section culminates with what we know as the golden rule. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Friends, this is life in the kingdom of Christ. For all of us who have repented of our sins, turned from our sins, and trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, not just for the forgiveness of our sins, which would be amazing if this were all that we received, but also for a perfect righteousness, the righteousness of King Jesus, the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of of the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 5, verse 20. A righteousness, listen, that is given to us as a free gift of grace 
by simple faith alone. This Sermon on the Mount is our life. Or at least it should be. Let's finish off the Sermon on the Mount overview this morning. Look again at Matthew 7, please, beginning in verse 13. And this is a word to all within the sound of my voice here and internet land. So, a word to all of you who have not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord. You are still in your sins. And without the perfect righteousness that you need to stand before God on that last great day of judgment, which is coming. I want you to see what the divine king is saying to you. The last portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 17, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, verses 13 to 27, is characterized, listen, by a demand for a decision. A demand for a decision. There are two gates. There are two ways. There are two kinds of fruit. And there are two foundations upon which you can build. And this series of twos, this series of contrasts, draws the line of demarcation, the dividing line between the citizens of Christ's kingdom and the rebels. You need to know this. We, we all need to know this. There are only two kinds of people in the world. One, citizens, subjects of King Jesus. Two, rebels. Please don't give me all of this. There are many paths to God ridiculousness. It's not true. It's a lie of the devil, and the devil was a liar from the beginning. You have either entered by the narrow gate, who is Christ, and are walking on the narrow way, which is the way of Christ, or you have gone through the broad gate and are walking on the broad way. We were all born there, by the way. And the broad gate, and the broad way, has only one end, and it is destruction. Matthew 7, verse 13. Just reading. I didn't write it. And lest any of us be deceived, Jesus is clear, is he not, that there are few on the narrow way. Think about that. Maybe as you lie in bed this evening. And lest any of us be even more deceived, thinking that Jesus is only talking about those out there in our godless culture where things have gotten so ridiculous that now we have males trying to breastfeed babies. I mean, that's ridiculous. Those people are clearly on the way to destruction. That is true. That's not difficult to discern. But hear these words of Jesus, the divine king. Look at your Bible. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day. Listen, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. God, save us. There are two kinds of fruit, friends. Fruit that will last. Fruit that will perish. And not the fruit only. Matthew chapter 7, verse 19. But the bad tree that produces the bad fruit itself, the tree, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I didn't write it. Just read it. Finally, friends, there are two foundations. A foundation of rock. Listen. A foundation of rock built on the indestructible life and the immutable words of Jesus the divine king. Or a foundation of sand. And the rebel houses that are built on the sand will fall. And their fall will be great. Matthew 7, verse 27. As I close up shop this morning, I want to remind you again of Joshua. I mentioned him at the beginning. I want to close with this. Joshua, we know, is a clear type of Christ from the Old Testament. Jesus is literally the new Joshua. On the cusp of death, Joshua addresses the Israelites whom he had led across the Jordan River decades earlier. And I want you to think with me of what Joshua had seen. Joshua had seen and experienced the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. Joshua had seen and experienced the ten plagues, the judgments of God on the Egyptians, followed by the glorious exodus, the delivery of a slave nation out of abject bondage and into freedom. Joshua had seen and experienced the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh's army. Joshua had seen and experienced the events at Mount Sinai up close and personal because he was with Moses on the mountain when Moses was given the law and the vision of the tabernacle. Joshua had seen and experienced the idolatry of his people Israel as they fashioned the golden calf. Joshua had seen and experienced the promised land of Canaan being one of the two spies who went in and gave a good report to Moses when the twelve spies returned. It was decidedly a minority report. Joshua had seen and experienced the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that resulted from the unbelief of that first generation of Israelites and he had seen that generation of Israelites die in the wilderness not having received the great promises of the God of Abraham Joshua had seen and experienced the death of Moses the great mediator of the old covenant and his cherished mentor and Joshua had seen and experienced the parting of the Jordan River and the conquest of Canaan which was the fulfillment of God's promises. In Joshua 24, he's 110 years old. And he's ready to die. And Joshua says this to the Israelites. 
Now therefore, after all these things, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the ridge river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in in whose land you dwell. But as for me, you know it. Go to Hobby Lobby, seat on a sign. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And this is what the new Joshua says to you today. The preeminent prophet, the great high priest of God, the divine king, the heir of David's throne, says to you, there are only two gates. There are only two ways. There are only two foundations. You can serve the false gods of secularism and society and self. Or you can fear and serve the one true God. The King of Kings. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Crucified, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven and seated now, alive, at the right hand of the Father. Serve him now or suffer his wrath later on that last great day which is coming. May it be said by all within the sound of my voice, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.